Hey, Unorthodox. This is Amy Gers calling from Greensboro, North Carolina. My great-grandparents had a last name that made them very proud. It meant leader. And back in the shuttle, that was a big deal. When they emigrated to America, they kept that name as a continued source of pride. But when their sons enlisted in the U.S. Army in World War II, they decided that the name Fuhrer might not be the best name to have stamped on your dog tags. That's why they changed their name to Fuller before they got to basic training. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet senior writer Leah Leibovitz. A happy Israeli election day to all. To all. Well, by the time they hear this, the coalitions will have been formed. By the time they hear this, the new election would have been announced. That's right. In three weeks. And deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Happy almost tax day. Almost tax so day. Is it too late to that? apply for an extension? Have you actually applied for an extension? No, not yet. That's a real middle-aged mom and dad thing to do. Oh, like, I, do? I have an accountant who does that for me every year, but I don't know why. why. I don't want to talk about it. I bet you use your mom and dad's accountant. I do. We're, we're trying to make, I hope he's not listening, but we're trying to make the switch. Um, so any, any, any tax people, what are they called? Accountants. accountants. <laughs> They're called accountants. Hit me up. <laughs> They're called Goldbergs. <laughs> Before we go deeper into the weeds of our finances, I should say this finances. week is the... You say finances? <laughs> Just around tax season and <laughs> iBankers. Um, finally, our names episode. We've been talking about this for a long time, and here we are. Today, we're going to talk about Jewish names and name-changing, the legacy of the literal Ellis Island and also the Ellis Island of the mind. What were our names in the old country? What were they in the newer country? What are they on these shores? How did they get here? How did that happen? Lots of listener voicemails, people telling your stories out there from the J. Crew. Uh, an extraordinary segment with Noah Levinson talking to Kirsten Vermeglish, who has written a book on the history of Jewish name-changing. Just names and name-changing all around the Jewish world today on Unorthodox. If you're wondering what's in the name, the answer will soon be revealed. But before we get there, uh, the interestingly named Liel Leibovitz, what's up in your life? Today, as I said before, is a very major Israeli holiday, yes. which we celebrate approximately every 12 to 36 months, <laughs> or whenever we feel like it, really, whenever we're in the mood. It's election day. Uh, this really has been one of the funniest campaigns or election seasons in, in recent memory. Uh, this election will be decided most likely by a party whose two major agenda items are A, rebuilding the third temple, and B, making weed legal. <laughs> but the person who's really, uh, I think, enchanting everyone's imagination these last couple of, of weeks is, of course, the former chief of staff and uh, prime ministerial hopeful, the very tall and somewhat attractive Benny Gantz. Whom I call Benny Gantz. 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 So my friend, who is a volunteer in his campaign, wrote on Facebook yesterday to say that a couple of days ago, Benny Gunz uh, appeared in a volunteer rally and said the following. This is a quote. I will do the the Benny Gunz accent. Okay. Uh, in Pretty Woman, a movie you should see, by the way, they go out <laughs> to dinner. And when they're still in the elevator, the man says to his girlfriend, uh, I may forget to thank you at the end of the evening for such a good time. So thank you in advance. So I want to say to all of you, thank you for everything you're done. <laughs> so Benny, two, two things, buddy, brother, dude. Do-do. Uh, first of all, you do realize she was a hooker in the movie, right? She's not his girlfriend. Like, you're talking to your volunteers that as if they nice were lady. your prostitutes, thanking them for a good time. Well, technically, he only needs them for like a set amount of time, <laughs> after which they become useless for, for him. For a really transactional yes, interaction. exactly. But then the second thing that really gets me, like, you're trying to replace BB. Your whole thing is like, you're the former chief of staff. You're the tough guy with the military experience. Why are you quoting a Gary Marshall movie? Yeah, what, why is that? You, you want are, him to quote Die Hard? It's like, um, as they say in Love Actually, <laughs> love, love actually is all around is us. All around. <laughs> so here's the thing. This actually solidifies my obsession with Israelis and American pop culture. Like, these are your references. No one loves Seinfeld more than Israelis. I like, know. This is, this is exactly he's like, right. In the canonical American text, right. Pretty Woman. It's like, it's uh, like, that's literally all you guys have. It's like, just like Julia Roberts in The Runaway Bride. I don't even know how I like my eggs right now. <laughs> I will be your Ross. You will be my Rachel. <laughs> this is so charming and like So amazing. who's going to win? Uh, I think that we know the answer to that. Beebs? Uh, it's the Beebs. It's There's an amazing... 
was an amazing video sharing, you know, making the rounds on, on social media. It's this like small, rotund elderly woman with like three teeth. And they ask her, what do you think um, about Bibi? And she's like, Bibi, that crook, that scoundrel, that. It's like, just goes on and on and on. It's like, okay, so who are you going to vote for? She's like, what do you mean? Only Bibi. <laughs> you know, again, look, a lot of Israelis are old enough to remember, you know, the state being founded. Um, people started out being like, what we need is a visionary leader. And then like, okay, well, you know, you had that and you were probably never getting this again. So you're like, what we need right now is like a great statesman, like a Churchill. You're not having that. So eventually, as you sort of like go down the path, what we need is someone who could basically run a good like Arby's franchise. Like keep the people from like the friendlies across the street from like invading, like keep everything kind of clean and okay. And like, we don't really mind. Like it's a decent franchise. That's BB. Speaking of middle managers, I have my 10-year college reunion this oh. weekend. Oh. Um, I'm so excited. Who are you going to hook up with? Probably no one. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, reunion um, pass? Listen, there's one person in that room, right, who you absolutely fucking despise and want to see <laughs> doing really, really poorly. I don't, Who's that I, person? Who do you want to I see honestly, overweight and thrice divorced? Do not feel like that about anyone. Oh, come on now. I think there are like... One person. Don't be no, fattest, Leo. I don't, I don't actually wish ill on anyone. I'm so excited for the people I don't even remember that I'm going to see, and I'm going to see them be really excited. Don't give us the positive but I also want to say, like... I need, I need one person the, you really the difference dislike. Thing, the difference is, like, Durham is actually a really fun and very different place. I lo- there's a lot going on there, so I'm actually Many excited. Many more microbrews. Yeah, so I'm, like, I'm excited for all, like, the, the restaurants and stuff like that. So, like, the reunion is actually secondary. Like, you know, there's events, but we're not really going to go to them. It's interesting because um, I went to a reunion of sorts uh, this past week. I took my daughters, my two eldest daughters, and their their two friends, the Amazons, to. Are they, um, from, they have the Amazon Fortune? Is the Amazon Fortune from like Amazon.com? <laughs> no, if if only, right? Uh, I took them to Roller Magic in Waterbury, Connecticut, where they rented skates and roller skated to contemporary top forty hits for about ninety minutes. And let me tell you, as a veteran of many many birthday parties <laughs> at Interskate ninety one. <laughs> And United States of America in Western Massachusetts, not a thing has changed, except (laughs) that there are some incredibly fabulous adult males who are there all decked out with like beads and and sparkly shirts skating their lives away. And we got we got in the van and my kids are already embarrassed that I'm there. They need me as a chauffeur, but I shouldn't be there. You shouldn't go inside. And I said, guys. I've discovered my calling. I'm going to get into the skating community. At which point, Rebecca literally turned to me and said, oh, no, 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 dad, no, dad, no, dad. I said, I'm kidding. I'm not really going to get into the skating community. I'm kidding, community. but Emma. But it looks so fun. <laughs> like, put on the disco and set me free, I baby. would say that. I imagine you doing that. That is a mental image that, sadly, I now have God. in my mind. I look forward to the day when that is the news of the Jews. But for this week, a little bit of of different news. (laughs) News of the Jews and sandwiches. A Jewish day school in San Diego decided they wanted to have uh, a little little fundraiser, a little charity uh, action, little acts acts of uh, tzedakah and chesed. So they broke the world record for the number of sandwiches made in under three minutes. They made 868 sandwiches. My Lord. Which topped the old record of 490. Wow. Uh, I don't know how large the sandwiches are. I'm sure Guinness Book says, like, are they they hoagies? Are they Oh, boys. It doesn't matter. It's putting something between two slices of bread. That's anyway, a lot of that to do. So mazel tov to them. Uh, they donated the sandwiches to a nearby shelter. Uh, and the other the other news that I want to bring up uh, is, you know, people have been emailing for a while saying, let's do something on the, the measles spreading in the Haredi community. And, and it is time. Uh, the anti-vaxxers are destroying us all. Um, we have the outbreaks in Detroit. We had one in Canada. We have the ones in Brooklyn. We it, It's going insane. Um, basically because you have – it's a number of things that are going on. One is uh, – the the unsung thing is you have some Haredi hippies who are like – you know, you in the Haredi world, you have a lot of midwives and doulas who are actually going to yoga studios with secular hippies – who are telling them, oh, it's big pharma and it's unnatural and whatever. So that spreads in. <laughs> then I discovered, so specific. so specific, then I discovered this past week that one of the big nodes, uh, someone I was talking to in Pittsburgh pointed this out to me, and it's true, is that Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky, one of the great Torah sages of America right now, he's like 147 years old, lives in Philadelphia. His wife, Temi Kamenetsky, is a serious anti-vaxxer. So Rebitz and Kamenetsky basically about two or three years ago started telling people, don't vaccinate, don't vaccinate, and handing out like pamphlets on Shabbos afternoon. And that's where it where a lot of it really? comes from. Yep. Huh. It's Reb Te- Rebitz and Temi Kamenetsky in Philadelphia, Center City. If you can find her, shame her. 
wag your finger in her Meanwhile, face. You know, I think this is actually like a great opportunity for, for really like bringing together the Jewish community because I, I see her Haredi and I raise you, my good friend who sends or sent his kids to school in the super, super, super upscale suburb of New York City, which should remain nameless, but it's not on Long Island. Uh, and discovered the other day, just on a lark, like asked the school nurse, like, by the way, what percentage of kids in this school is vaccinated? And literally, it's a lower percentage of vaccination than Afghanistan. Like Afghanistan's like 43%, the school's like 38%. Then you have our good friend Bethany Mandel, who's been on the show, who wrote a great piece for the New York Times about how hard it is as a homeschooling mom, because all the you, you want your kids to have playdates, but all the other homeschool kids are unvaccinated oh because God. the homeschool community, filled with many fine people, but also with some goddamn Fruit Loops. And, you know, you don't want your kids swimming in the organic milk with the other little Fruit Loops. So she doesn't know where to take her kids because, you know, the upscale places are unvaccinated. The downscale places are unvaccinated. The answer is United States of America. Um, God. And this is where it all leads, right? In the news this past week, anti-vaccine activists were wearing a yellow Star of David oh. to promote their solidarity with Haredi anti-vaxxers up in Rockland County. because oh, they were like, those are Jews and we're Yeah, we're it was Jews like, we are symbolic Jews and, and they are Jews and we are all being oppressed by the Nazis who want to vaccinate. So that's what, so you now have them appropriating the yellow star to say that <laughs> Requiring your kids to be vaccinated is the same as throwing you in Auschwitz. Is there a community, Mark, in America that you dislike more than anti-vaxxers? Um, I don't think there is. I think this is the peak rage I, you'd ever get. This is, this well, is it's all your dis- I've ever seen dislike you. of like new agey yeah, stuff. Yeah, and stupidity and irrationality. And then you pull in some, you pull in various <laughs> religious communities that are not my religious community per se. And, and uh, you know, and secular communities that are, you're, yes, it's like every community that I'm adjacent to, but despise. It's like your Venn diagram. It hatred. is my Venn diagram. And so on behalf of all of us here in Unorthodox Please fucking vaccinate Please your vaccinate. children. And if you don't, we ban you from listening to Unorthodox. Oh, that's right. no. no, I've done this before and I'll do it again, which is we don't want any anti-vaxxer listeners. And you know when I said that last time? I got one letter from someone who said, well, I'm going to keep listening to you anyway. I'm not going to vaccinate, but you're not getting me out of your life. <laughs> I was like, okay. It's like a scourge of that's something right. that you can't prevent because you're not vaccinated. Shocking, so. right? Stephanie, any news of the Jews to take us home? Okay, so a quick, a quick hit. Um, Max the Matzah? is a hit in the Netherlands, according to JTA. Um, Kanan Lipschitz writes, but in the Netherlands, where matzah, for many non-Jews, is a household item year-round, which, why? Who knew? Max became an unlikely hit with the general population since its creation about 15 years ago as the unofficial mascot of the Children's Museum of Amsterdam's Jewish Cultural Quarter. Max has proven popular beyond the country's 40,000 Jews. So basically, Max the matzah. He's a little mascot. Um, he's a mascot. And we I want to show game you every a picture Passover. because... He hides in the attic. And you see if you could find him. He's like a cartoon matzah character here I'm going to show you. But he has like these like, he kind of looks like a frog, but he's made of matzah. And now he's like people in in Amsterdam are just like obsessed with him. Yeah, he's like a little. By the way, by the, by the look little, of him, he's a shmura matzah. He is a shmura matzah. And he has these like, like, like he's kind of like jacked a little he, bit too. He's like a jacked matzah teletubby is what he is. I think parts of him have risen, if you know what I mean. He has, <laughs> he has a comic book. Like it's, he's like a real, a real, oh my God, but he lives in. It's so disturbing. Oh God, how about this? He lives in a dollhouse in the he, attic of a I Dutch was, Jewish family. He, I was going to say, does he live in an attic? He has to live he's in an attic. He's related to Benny the Bagel. Ayala the Hala and Gita the Pita. But for some reason, Max Mansa has really taken off. Here's what they say. He's brittle and vulnerable on the one hand, but strong and robust on the other. And scene. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So let's talk Jewish names. 
Monsieur Leibovitz, Madame Butnick. Is that a Jewish name? <laughs> you are listening to a podcast hosted by Oppenheim, the law firm of Oppenheimer, Butnick, and Leibovitz. One senses that none of us ever had a name change in our background. Stephanie, eight hundred eight 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 eight. Stephanie, what's what's the the Butnick Rothhaus story? My mother's maiden name is Rothhaus, and I asked my and then my my maternal grandmother is Kaufman. So I asked both, I basically put out some feelers to yeah. my family to see what the situation is. So my grandpa, this is what Grandpa Al says. Grandpa Al is pretty famous around here. I am told that Rothhaus is from the German for Red House and was a name that was usually applied to the local courthouse. It is also the brand name for a popular beer in Bavaria. If you look online, there's like Rothhaus crates. Jawohl. Yeah, wow. on, on eBay. I kind of want to get good. one. Um, he says, although I'm pretty sure that the name brought over was Rothhaus, family lore says that a cousin bringing the name in was designated Kraus because the person doing the recording found Rothhaus too complicated. And Kraus it was for the rest of his life. Love, Grandpa. And then on my on the Butnik side, I had to like get to the bottom of it because yeah. I, I was at, I think it was Bergen Belsen. You had to get Bergen to the bottom Belsen. of the Butnik side. Ha ha ha. I, you never I heard at, that before. I was at Bergen Belsen, I think, and I was looking in the records and my grandparents had been there. Um, my grandparents actually met in the DP camp at Bergen Belsen. I actually think a lot of people. That's so romantic. Email me. Yeah, it's very romantic. What a meet cute. Me. If your grandparents also met in the DP camp at Bergen Belsen, hit me up. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, a lot of people did. So basically in the records at Bergen Belsen, I saw Butnik with no C. And so that was <gasps> as my family's name. And so I was like, at the time I was in high school, I was like, I'm sorry, that's the change you made? We added, added a C, C to Butnick? So I asked my Uncle Joel, and he says, I said, why Butnick to Butnick? Um, but but B-U-T-N-I-K is like Butnick. Like, that's really intense. And he says simply to Americanize, my grandfather was Mendel, he became Milton. Um, my grandmother apparently right. was Dorka and became Dora. Um, so that's that's my story. I mean, it's sort of t- small tweaks along the way, and he thinks it happens within, within the few, first few years of them being in America. So, Lee, I'll top that. I have nothing in terms of last name, uh, although I think there was some kind of pressure. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting because in Israel, right, there was a pressure on a lot of people to get, ri- ri- to, to get rid of those exactly, Ashkenazi to, to become pure hypocrites. So, right. so some of the family became either Ben Ari or Lev Ari, which is what label which means. It's like a lion related. Uh, Lionheart? Lionheart? Yeah. 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 Uh, my family never went for any of that. We maintained our full, full exilic. Uh, wonder, but to me, really, the the central trauma has been my you know preposterous first name, which we should spell for some. We still get <laughs> listeners who are who never How do they you don't get the newsletter. That? Your name is L I E L, correct? Lee L, that it is. Um, my father wanted to name me Lee after Lee Marvin. Because uh, the Dirty Dozen was <laughs> his favorite movie of all like time. American culture in Absolutely. Israel is not after my cousin Lee Kirshner. Uh, not after Lee Kirshner at all. Um, and so my mother wanted to name me Eliyahu after her one of her ancestors, <laughs> who was a great the prophet rabbi. Elijah. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the seventies. You know, drugs might have been involved. And I like Lee Eliyahu. Well, let's just do Lee El, which I've hated with a with a burning passion for most of my life, but have since come to kind of like. Specifically because I, I actually love what it says. It, it means literally, I to me, there is a God. It means my God. And, and it, sort of. No, no, it means I have a God. Okay. And I, I love that. Wow. It's very true for me. You've it, really it, grown into I've it. I've really grown into it. Um, I have nothing to, I mean, Oppenheimer Mark, has been Oppenheimer for um, Oppenheim. a lot of centuries. Uh, my mother's family, they're Kirchners. Kirsch means, I, is it, I think, cherry in German. Those maraschino um, kirches. Yeah. And, and, but Kirchner was, it's a, it's a German name that's often Jewish. And, you know, they were Ukrainians who picked up that name somewhere. Um, so no big name changes except my mother when she, um, her job in New York City when my dad was in law school was she worked at the New York Times in the classified ad section taking classifieds. You wore a headset. You know, you called the people called them in. She was an operator in classifieds. And when she answered the phone, she wouldn't, you were not supposed to give your own name because then creepy men would like call and ask for you again and again and ask you to read things to them about <laughs> stockings. And so instead of saying, hello, Miss Kirshner, may I help you? Or I guess she was Mrs. Oppenheimer by then. She would say, good morning, Miss Walters, may I help you? Now, Walter is my her father's name, my grandfather, Walter. But also his brother, my uncle Sidney, who had gone into the theater, had taken the last name Walters. So there is one branch of the family that is not the Kirshners. They are the Walters. So I have a cousin, Johnny Walters, Rebecca Walters. Johnny and so forth. Walters. Johnny Walters. He's a labor lawyer. And of course, David Walter. Yes. And my son, David Walter. So Walter is this thing like that gets that gets into the family because it's my grandfather's first name. But it is a last name in my in I my like family. Um, and it, it is also 
also my mother's like at times it has been her reservation name with with Domino's or with the elite friendlies. If you're calling for <laughs> reservations, uh, the family they know name, her. The family name was Walters. Like when that's our sort of like crypto, you go know, to under Amer- the radar. Your nom to Sunday. Go to name. Exactly. But listen, we put out the call for all of your name change stories in the uh, in the J crew. And uh, we got we got some really good ones. Have a listen. My name is Gary Sims. My father was born in the United States, and his name was Ruvain Simonoff. He graduated at the top of his class in 1947 with a degree in electrical engineering. But Jewish graduates didn't find jobs in the industry because of anti-Semitism. He legally changed his name from Ruvain Simonoff to Robin Sims and had a position with a major firm within two weeks. My grandfather was an actor in New York in the 1940s. However, Milton Itzkowitz was a wee bit too ethnic for the 1940s, so he changed his name. He actually went further back into the family tree and found the name Caroli, dropped the Y, and became Milton Carroll. So that's why today my last name is Carroll instead of Itzkowitz. My grandfather's original last name was Cohn, spelled K-O-H-N, according to the census records. His family decided to Americanize the name and changed it to Cowan, spelled K-O-W-A-N. But that wasn't American enough. My grandfather decided he did not like Cowan with a K, so he went with Cowan with a C. So there's about 50 plus members of my family whose last name is Cowan with a K and seven with a C. Um, my name is Raquel Cedar. As you can hear, it's not a very Jewish sounding name, but it has very Jewish origins. I'm named after my great uncle Ray, hence Raquel, and Cedar is our family name, which apparently was changed from Cedar or Seder, um, order at Ellis Island. Um, my name is Jamie Spock. So the family legend on my mother's side, and my great-great-grandfather was born in Russia and to avoid conscription into the Tsar's army. There was another family in the town and that didn't have any sons because it was sons that would be conscription to the army. They adopted my great-great-grandfather, so that son took the name Libyan. So my grandmother's maiden name, Libyan, is not actually supposed to be her real name. When my father was two, his natural father, Murray Kane, passed away from leukemia. When my grandmother remarried, her husband adopted my father. Many, many, many years later, after my grandmother passed, my father, brother, and stepmother changed their name back to the original family name of Cain. And then, after my father was going through my grandmother's estate, found out that six months before he was born, uh, Grandpa Murray had changed his name from Cohen to Cain to anglicize it just a little bit. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Cantor Audrey Klein calling. My great-grandfather, Joe Weiss, was born in Hungary and came to the U.S. when he was about five years old. And he went to kindergarten and is meeting all of his new American friends. And he comes home from the first week of kindergarten and declares that his name is Joe, even though he actually was born Mikhail. So all of a sudden, his family has to start calling him Joe. He also decided to change his birthday to Christmas, to December 25th. I actually don't know when his real birthday was, but from then on, he started celebrating his birthday on December 25th because he felt that that was very American. So a little story about a little boy named Mikhail who became your average American Joe. I love these voicemails. Thanks to all of you who called in your name stories. Maybe we'll do some more in the future. Remember that our number is 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. Call us in Armonk. <laughs> I love that we have a 914. Is that where it shows? Is, it, is that like Westchester? It's Westchester, yeah. <laughs> it feels right. Having heard your voicemails from the J Crew about your name changes in Israel, in the old country, and here in America at Ellis Island, we wanted to get to the bottom of this whole thing. What is the truth about name changes in Jewish America? What really happened in Ellis Island? Really happened at Ellis Island. We tasked super uber producer Noah Levinson to go out and find out the deep history of the Jew, the island, and the changed name. Have a listen. 
So there's a story that's really common in a lot of American Jewish families about how their last names came to be what they are right now. All right, so say you're a Jew named Robbins. There's a pretty good chance that your family name used to be Rabinowitz. And maybe somebody in your family has already told you this about how your grandpa or your great-grandpa, let's call him Yonkel, came over from Poland or somewhere, and when he arrived at Ellis Island, the immigration officer changed his official name. And henceforth, your Zadie went by the more American-sounding Jacob Robbins. And all of a sudden, at least on paper, Yonkel's a Yankee, a crypto-Jew, passing when he needs to. Of course, this phenomenon is not exclusively Jewish. In fact, its most famous depiction is in the beginning of The Godfather Part Two, where we see a 12-year-old Vito Andolini, fresh off the boat from Sicily, make his way through the Great Hall of Ellis Island. A thousand somber immigrants with numbers pinned to their coats crowd the concourse, where each encounters one in a row of uniformed agents at a tall wooden desk, each busily scribbling in a logbook. Vito is alone. What is your name? Come on, son. What is your name? Vito just looks down at his shoes. A translator comes over and checks the ticket. Vito Andolini from Corleone. And thus originates one of the most famous Italian-American family names in fiction. Corleone. Vito Corleone. Okay. Over there. Check. Seventy years after the immigration station there shut down, Ellis Island is still a potent symbol in American history. But what it's a symbol of? Well, that really depends on how you squint. On the one hand, it's where over 12 million immigrants entered the U.S. around the turn of the 20th century. Nearly half of all American citizens have a relative who went through Ellis Island. So it has a lot of positive associations for people. But it has a lot of negative ones, too. The inspection process there was routinely terrifying to a new immigrant. While you would wait on the stairs to go in, the doctors would give you a once-over and mark your coat in chalk if they thought you looked sick. If you were, they could send you on the first ship home, separating you from your family. In the 1920s, amidst rising xenophobia, Congress severely restricted immigration. By the end of the 30s, Ellis Island was processing more deportations than new arrivals. During World War II, the government used Ellis Island as an internment camp, where they detained over 7,000 German, Italian, and Japanese-American citizens, some for years. So the memory of these name-change interactions comes in the context of a conflicting history of welcome and unwelcome at Ellis Island. Sure, you can live here, but your name, your identity, there's no room for it in America. My family history contains an Ellis Island name change story of its own. I asked my grandma Razi to explain it. My father and my grandfather and grandmother and his siblings came from Russia. They came through Ellis Island. Some of the family had already been here to vouch for them, which was the only way that you could enter the country. What's what's your dad's name? Max. His name was... Max Belfer, but Ellis Island officials changed it to Max Bell, who left out the rest of the name. And all his siblings became known as Bells. Belfer was eliminated. It was never heard from again. And that happened, according to them, at Ellis Island. Do you remember any other details about that story? Not really. That was about... uh, All that it was, they shortened it to Bell, and they accepted it. The idea that they just accepted it, you know, like stood at the desk, some stranger with a notebook tells them they have a new name now. I have to say, that detail has fit pretty easily into my admittedly vague conception of what my predecessors went through to get here. I may not have paid very much attention on all those field trips we took in Hebrew school, Holocaust Museum, the Tenement Museum, Ellis Island in the eighth grade, but if anything stuck from all of that, It was that no aspect of my ancestors' hardship, large or small, should ever seem that unlikely to me. But here's the thing about this one. The Ellis Island officer changing the family name. Most historians and genealogists don't believe that it happened. Kirsten Vermeglish, a professor of Jewish American history and the author of A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, A History of Jewish Name Changing in America. 
it's very hard to prove a negative. You know what I mean? I, I can't absolutely say that it, it didn't happen to people's relatives. But I would say that historians who say this will point to a number of things, which is that most of their oral histories from people who actually went through the island don't say that. Right. So these are stories that get sort of told second and third hand. But most of the oral histories from people who actually went through don't tend to say it. There's no doubt that thousands of Jewish families had their names changed after coming to America, but not at Ellis Island and not at the whim of government officials. The truth is, they did it voluntarily. Um, you don't think it's possible that they changed their name after they got, um, after they'd already been established in no. the... No. No, it was changed at, at Ellis Island. They didn't, there would have been no reason for them to change it on their own. They didn't do it. The government did it. So it's just weird because I'm reading these articles which say, no, that's not really what happened. Like, they, they changed it on their, on their own, and a few stories of this Ellis Island officer doing it got blown into a myth that everybody has in their family now, but they don't think it's really true. Well, it may very well be that if they tried to get them to write it, they wouldn't know how. Well, but the... the... They ended, they stopped at the bell. <laughs> okay, so not to, like, totally belabor the point, but if this book I'm reading that says your family's Ellis Island name change story is very likely one in a big net of myths, your response to that is... Were they there? <laughs> How did the myth-taker-downers know it wasn't true? Were they there? That's a good point. I got it from the horse's mouth. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't make it up. I don't think he made it up. That was his impression. And it was a one-on-one thing. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into it. Okay. I'll get, I'll get back to you on that. Thank you. You're welcome. Pleasure. Grandma Rozzy is right, of course. The myth taker downers were not there. So I found the next best thing. Someone who, when he talks, he makes you feel like he was there. Okay, when you boarded the ship in Europe, you were asked probably about 20 to 30 questions, depending on the time period. You know, the basic stuff, your name, your age, your occupation. Then they get into the questions that could be tricky. They asked, are you an anarchist? And they asked, are you a polygamist? <laughs> Peter Urban is a park ranger at Ellis Island National Museum. He was a longtime high school history teacher, and you can totally hear it. When he breaks down the process of interviews at Ellis Island, he uses the second person. Like, maybe I'm thinking about immigrating to America. Hopefully you're going to remember your answers. Uh, so don't forget an answer. Uh, don't give an incorrect answer. And don't look too shifty or suspicious giving the answer. All of them are reasons for you to be detained. So if you answer all those questions properly, uh, they're pretty much going to let you through. I mean, the interview here at Ellis Island by the inspector will probably take about three to five minutes. Bing, bang, boom, they're done. What a lot of people don't realize, according to Peter, is that during these interviews, the immigration officers didn't actually write anything down. They were just checking the immigrants' answers against the ones they had provided to the shipping companies back in Europe. They didn't send the immigrants off with ID cards, passports, anything like that. And contrary to the image of the culturally insensitive immigration officer conjured up by these name-change anecdotes, most Ellis Island immigration officials actually knew three or four languages, and they were pretty familiar with foreign-sounding names. The idea that these officers just changed the information given to them, gave people new Anglo-sounding names, it just runs contrary to everything historians know about the process. What you're really looking at here is a myth that has been promulgated just by every ethnic group down through the generations. As a lot of immigrants simply changed their names. Like my original name was Urbanovsky, not Urban. That's what it was when my great-grandfather came here. So the Ofsky is always a tip-off to an American employer or anybody in American society that you're a foreigner. A lot of immigrants very quickly learned that the Ofsky is not doing me any good here. I don't want to be Urbanovsky anymore. I just want to be Urban. So they, when they were asked their names, they would say Urban. When the census came around, they'd say Urban. Uh, now, over the years, people start doing their family research, and then they say, well, wait a minute. This says Urbanovsky here. 
And then somebody's always asking some older member of the family or somebody, what happened to the name? And what's the answer? They changed it at Ellis Island. It's the easiest thing to say. The inspector changed it at Ellis Island. Then they'll point to Godfather Part Two and say, see? So we actually put the word out to our listeners with Ellis Island name change stories in their own backgrounds to go check them out. Robin Koenig Shapiro got back to us. She'd always thought that her grandfather Abe had had his last name changed from Skorka to Scott at Ellis Island. So she dug out an old tape of her aunt interviewing that grandfather about his journey to America. It's how you decided to come and what the trip was like and what was the name of the boat. Think I remember the name? Well... Think about it. What do you remember? The thing Abe Scott remembered the most was arriving in the harbor in the middle of the night and being woken up by the sound of loud explosions outside. And all of a sudden, I heard a commotion. He thought the ship was under attack. Turns out it was just fireworks. It was New Year's Eve. It was New Year's Eve. What year was it? 1940. New Year's Eve, 1940. Because it was a holiday and there was no one at the immigration station to process the passengers... Abe and everybody else stayed on the boat for an extra day. He arrived at Ellis Island on January 2nd. What was that like? What did you? What was what Ellis Island like? They just like they handled you like a bunch of cattle. They treated you like a bunch of cattle, he says. You go through that building, and as you go, they make uh, the officials make marks on your back. You don't even know it. The officials would make marks on your back. You didn't even know it. Were you scared that you might get sent back? Anyway, here comes the part we really cared about. Robin's aunt asks. Is that where they changed your name? No. No, Abe replies. Name changing, that's when you take out citizenship. Name changing. That's when you take out citizenship papers. Well, when you went there, you told me your name was Skorka, right? Was your name Skorka? Okay. So when you went through there, it's on the record that you were Abraham Skorka. So if I went looking for a record, I would have to look for Skorka. Until she listened to the tapes, Robin's understanding of the story was that the name was changed at Ellis Island. But it sounds like Abe never even made that claim. Maybe somewhere along the line, someone in her family said the name got changed at Ellis Island to mean it got changed after they came to America. And in Robin's memory, just like so many others... That became literal. Professor Vermeglish thinks that might explain how the myth exists in so many families. It's kind of the entire process of immigration. It's this whole confusing kind of visit to the U.S. that that sort of is what people mean when they say Ellis Island changed my name. But Professor Vermeglish didn't really spend a lot of time trying to knock down the Ellis Island name change myth in particular. Instead, she dug into the archives of where most of the name changes actually did occur in the Civil Court of New York. And what she discovered was pretty surprising. What I found in looking at name change petitions, which were petitions filed with a lawyer, a large majority of them are filed by native-born Americans. And so really, my work is really about asking why native-born Americans in pretty large numbers would want to change their names and frequently call their names foreign, you know, not American, um, even though they were born in America. And the answer is, is, to a large extent, they start changing their names, in part because of the rise of uh, a state that begins to look at their names. And that is both a, a, like a government state, but it's also private. It is employers and it is schools um, and it is professions. Jews are the most successful white immigrants in becoming middle class. Um, and they are the most ambitious in becoming middle class. And as they rise into the middle class, they begin to face the growth of institutionalized anti-Semitism that in part is constructed around both their names and their changing of names. So colleges in the 19-teens and employers begin to ask people, what's your name? What's your father's name? Did anybody in your family change their name? Right. So they're both looking at Jewish names and there's contemporary reports that people with Jewish names are, you know, pretty much being not not given jobs, you know, asked to leave employment agencies or, or not being given, you know, the opportunity even to walk into the employment agencies. Um, Again, it wasn't just Jews who changed their names during this time, but there's good evidence to suggest that they did it at a significantly higher rate than other ethnic groups in New York. 
1932, for example, one measure suggests that almost two-thirds of the city's name change petitions were filed by people with Jewish-sounding last names. You know, I, I was in the New York City Civil Court, and they actually keep these big books. I did a lot of my research with these big, huge books where they kept the name changes um, in the early years, and then they kept these indexes, and it was alphabetical. And you'd go to, like, the C's, right? And they'd have, a, they had, basically, they kept lists of the names that are changed. And you'd go to the C's, and you would just see Cohen, 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 Cohen. You'd have an entire page that might be all Cohen's, right, with one or two exceptions, right? Or you'd go to the G's, and you just have a page of Greenbergs and Goldbergs. And I do feel sadness. I mean, I do feel like you're sort of seeing these names be erased, be washed away. I asked Professor Vermeglish, given this well-documented history of voluntary name-changing, why the myth would persist that the changes happened at Ellis Island. Well, I think that name-changing, especially after World War II, becomes something that is uh, a little bit shameful. I mean, there's, there's a lot of there's certainly a lot of communal debate and discussion and disagreement about name changing. I think that there's a lot of unease about having changed names. And I think that sometimes the story is being told because people are a little bit uncomfortable or embarrassed. And I want to say, I mean, I write my book. I don't think there's any reason to be embarrassed or uncomfortable or ashamed. I mean, that's one of the main things that I think in my story is that I think people change their names because of a great deal of pressure to change their names. Um, it doesn't mean that these people don't want to be in involved in the Jewish community. But there's pushback, right? There's there's a lot of feeling from a lot of people in the community that this is something shameful, that you're betraying the community. Of all the gems the professor unearths in her book, the most amusing and heartbreaking are these moments where Jews, looking to change their names in court, find themselves petitioning in front of Jewish judges. In one case, a Brooklyn salesman named Louis Goldstein tries to get his name changed to Golding claiming that his current name was un-American, not euphonious, and an economic handicap. Unfortunately for him, the judge he was assigned to was also named Louis Goldstein. Judge Goldstein denied the petition. In another case, Everett Levy encounters a judge named Aaron Levy, who does allow him to change his last name to Leroy, but not without a damning reproach. Quote, he is wholly ignorant of the fact that the Bible tells us that the tribe of Levi never worshipped the golden calf. Let the application be granted, so that his people might well be rid of him. So yeah, maybe it's no wonder that the Ellis Island name change myth became more widely circulated than the truth. It's easier on our conscience more consistent with our self-perception as proud Jews, to have the burden of such a decision placed onto an imaginary bureaucrat than to admit that we made those decisions ourselves. At first, I find this all depressing. I think because of the way it stands in contrast to the example of biblical Jews, to the extent that I know anything about them. Because in the Torah, it just feels like it's story after story of Jews refusing, under threat of annihilation, to give up their Jewish identities. Kind of the opposite of caving to anti-Semitism and changing your name to blend in. Oh, I totally disagree that our ancestors were always gallantly upholding this tradition without any compromises. I think the tradition itself shows us that that's false. Enter Jewish author Dara Horn. Dara plays Hebrew school teacher with me for a minute, which, again, not having paid that much attention in Hebrew school, I appreciate. Today's Parsha the long list of biblical Jews whose goyish names allowed them to pass. I mean, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace thinking he was a prince. Actually, Moses' own name is an example of kind of Judaizing of a, of a foreign name, you know, because it says, oh, Moshe was, you know, because he was drawn from the water. Like, really? Moses is like Rameses, right? It's the suffix for a royal name where you append the name of the god. Like, this is an Egyptian name that we've like turned into a Jewish name. Esther changed her name from Hadassah, right? Esther is Ishtar. It's a, it's a Persian god. Same with Mordecai is Marduk. It's a Persian god. So, I mean, these people had like, you know, it would be like being named like, you know, Christine today, right? I mean, these are names from a different tradition. And all of a sudden, I feel much better about the whole thing. Like, changing your name isn't turning your back on your Jewish heritage. In fact, it's actually part of your Jewish heritage. Even the myth part, the part where we tell ourselves a comforting fable to alter the context of the name change. That's in the tradition, too. Um, there's a midrash that says that the way that the Jews maintain their heritage in Egypt is that they did not change their names. Well, it's obviously 
false because even Joseph, who's the first Jew in Egypt, so to speak, in the book of Genesis, Joseph is the one who starts the, you know, brings the Jewish people to Egypt. He changes his name. It's right there in the text in Genesis. He changes his name from Joseph to, uh, I think it's Snafnat Paneha. He changes it to an Egyptian name. It's like not a secret here. So you made a practical decision to change your name yourself, which if people knew in your family that you had made that choice, they would think that this is basically my ancestors rejected my Jewish heritage. Think about what you're accomplishing by changing that story and blaming someone else for that name change. You are saying, no, I maintained my Jewish heritage. This place made me change my name. But to me, it was important to keep it, and I want it to be important to you, too. What's your advice for me on how should I go back to my grandma with this information and tell her that I don't think that our name was literally changed at Ellis Island? How should I approach that conversation? I think if you're going back to that person in your family from whom you heard that story, to tell them, you know, this name was not changed at Ellis Island, I think that you thank them for telling this story and for bringing this story to your family. That's going to be a tough sell. I, I gotta, <laughs> thank you, Grandma. I I don't believe you, but thank you. Well, I mean, you're not saying I don't believe you, but thank you. You're saying your family name wasn't changed at Ellis Island. It was changed by someone in your family who was under extraordinary pressure that we are so fortunate to not be able to even imagine now by assigning this to someone at Ellis Island, they spared us the pain of saying, look how horrific it was to live in this time. They made us believe that it never was necessary for us to change our names, that it was simply a bureaucratic mistake. This country has always welcomed us. Thank you for making me believe that, because that's a belief that we need. As much as I appreciate Dara's sentiment, that is not what I say to Grandma Razi. Actually, I have some new information for her. She'd advise me to get in touch with her cousin, Harriet, who's been compiling the family history for years. And when I did, Harriet informed me that the name was definitely not changed from Belfer to Bell at Ellis Island. Max changed it. The best reason she could glean for this decision came from my grandma Rosie's brother, my Uncle Hesh, who reported that their father struggled with his English and elected to go by Bell because it had fewer letters and was easier to spell. I don't know, what do you think about that? It's possible. It's possible that it was easier for him to use Bell instead of Belfer. He didn't know English very well, and it made it shorter and easier. Could be. Do you think he maybe changed it from Belfer to Bell because Bell is less identifiably Jewish? No. I do not. And why do you think, I don't know, why do you think he would have said that he he had his name, that an immigration officer changed his name if he made the decision himself? I don't know. It was never a big discussion. It was never a big, of great importance. Because nobody, because people didn't ask him about it or he didn't no, like to talk about it? either. That I recall, it never came up very often. I keep wondering if Dara's explanation applies to our family. Like, maybe it doesn't at all. Maybe Max really did change his name just because it was easier to spell, and my grandmother got a hold of the Ellis Island myth purely by accident, portending nothing but the ubiquity of the Godfather Part Two on our national collective memory. Or maybe Max was shrewd enough to know that Bell was less likely than Belfer to out him as a Jew. And the Ellis Island story served exactly the purpose Dara suggested, to shield his kids from the pain of that decision. Either way, he didn't raise his children to believe that anti-Semitism was a part of their lives in America at all. What did, what did Max talk about from that time, from when he, uh, when he was younger? How difficult life was in Russia. How glad he was to be able to leave and stay alive because the Russian army were after him. They were after all the Jews. But I don't think that he was too concerned about uh, anti-Semitism here. 
do you think it was important to him that you guys fit in more or more important to him that you remain really distinctively Jewish and different? Oh, it was, it was never an issue. You could have it both ways. We fit in wherever we were and a lot of where we were was populated by Jews, not all. Not everybody was Jewish. We got along with our non-Jewish neighbors and and it never seemed to make a difference. We did what we did, they did what they did, and when our paths crossed, they crossed as friends. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks again for your time, Grandma. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. You are, you're one of my favorite people to interview, actually. <laughs> you're very relaxed. Because you think I'm making it all up. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I don't think you're making it up. I, I told, I'm I trying to think of the name of the person from Whippany Paper Boy. I never said I'd ever forget that name. <laughs>
Lucius, and some people wanted Luscious. I will I'm read that luscious. as Luscious. Number six. Versus, versus Leah Leibovitz. So it'll be Leah, Leah, Leibovitz, Leibovitz. Exactly. Fantastic. Um, the next matchup is Mahalalel versus Seymour. <laughs> okay. And then Schlamazel versus Stephanie. What? I have to say, I voted for Stephanie. I did too. <laughs> and then the final one, you know, Lisa, Liel's wife, reached out to me and said, do, do I not get some wifely prerogative or anything here? I, I, I need Instead to of white one. privilege, does she have wife privilege? She, she, has, she is the most privileged. So we're going we're gonna to pull rank here and pull out one of the other ones. So, and, and it tells you everything you need to know uh, about me, probably. Uh, what is the name that my wife suggested as a middle name? Well, first, the one it's competing against is Aurelio, but the one that Lisa insisted on, which is genius, got to give it to her, Ahab. I think that's a, that's a winner right there. So how do people vote, Josh? I am going to be posting a link shortly to the voting for the Sweet 16 round um, in the Facebook group. You got to come in the Facebook group, and this round will be there. And then when that one closes, we'll put in all the next round. And by next week, we'll have a winner. Amazing. And remember, no other show lets you rename a host. Liel Stephanie Leibowitz. I think it's, I think it's been it's great. I'd say Mark was in the running, too. I Mark got knocked out well, in round but... one. <laughs> so Liel me... Stephanie Leibowitz does sound very manly. Now, let's see. What, what do you say for... It's the big dance. I can't wait for the final four. Hey, J. Crew, do you want to come learn storytelling with me, with Catherine Burns from The Moth, with Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, Sarah Stillman from The New Yorker, Danielle Smith from ESPN? If so, join me for three nights, three days in June on beautiful Yale University's campus, thread.yale.edu. If you want to come to the Thread Storytelling Conference, there's an early bird discount promo running through April 21st. It's $350 off the $19.95 tuition fee. It's nearly 20% off. Is that something that you could do? Will you join us? Go to thread.yell.edu. I would personally love to see you there. And we did have a couple members of the J Crew there last summer. So let's do it again. I will also be at Smith College on April 11th giving a talk called The Jew and the Podcast. On April 28th, I'll be at One Day University in Manhattan giving a talk, American Jews, Where Are We Now? Go to OneDayU.com to learn more. And May 30th, I will be emceeing the Hebrew College Storytelling Gala in beautiful greater Boston, Massachusetts. You can go to HebrewCollege.edu and find out more about that. I would love to see you there. And I hear that my podcast co-host Stephanie Butnick has an event coming up as well. Yes, fresh off our Unpacking the Book event with Nathan Englander and Rebecca Sofer. I'm doing another event at the Jewish Museum with Danny Shapiro. She has an amazing new book out called Inheritance. And I think our listeners would be very interested in what she has to say. And it's May 9th from 7 to 8.30, and you can register online for free at the Jewish Museum's website. A number of years ago, I did a book event with Danny Shapiro, and she— uh, I did, too. The audience was enraptured. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox. Two bits of listener correspondence this week. The first comes off of Facebook, according to legend. I don't have Facebook, but I've heard rumors. Eric Schultz. Comes from a distant land called Facebook. Called, called fa I go on my wife's Facebook. Called Facebookiana. Eric Schulte writes, and this is, this is a, a very important question. All of you out there, pull over to the side of the road, idle your car, tell the kids to shush. Listen to this. He says, I'm thinking about cutting my hair shorter, but I don't want to deny my head my kippah. What's the shortest recommended top length that would still support a bobby pin or hair clip? I want to get my summer do on. <laughs> now, I've never gone that short. <laughs> like finding something to clip a kippa to is not my problem. I'm not qualified to answer this. But they're bold men with kippas. But they're what bald men with kippas. So, like suction cups? Look, keepas, or? I mean, shout out to my friend Michael Hurwitz, master of the shiny turtle waxed pate. And the Bukharan kippah, the one that comes down around the sides. Ah, but I think if, you're, if you have coverage. no hair, it's there's a different type of traction you're going to get. It's called Elmer's glue. No, but you, I think you, I think the, 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 the issue is that no, that if you if you have a shaved head, like there's no, there's 
it just stays on. The problem is hair, like a short amount of hair. I so think. your advocate like, pushes it off. Yeah, there's, your advocate there's nothing. sheer physics. Yes. yes. Okay, that's very. I, interesting. I mean, I usually am. So we didn't really know the answer to this question. We wanted to air this question. We want um, for perhaps some some military Jews, some people have had to go buzz cuts. Uh, people were responding with clipper numbers. Like I've never understood the whole taxonomy of like give me a two on the side, a four on top, and all that's <laughs> that's like a kind of manhood I don't do because right. if you're that guy, you're either military or you're getting some sort of interesting hockey cut. Or you don't have fabulous hair or like yeah, Mark like, like, Yeah, you got things, those, lush, those Leah Luscious locks. Something, thing you'll, among the things you'll never hear me say, give me a two on top and a three on the sides. But there are men who are super... No one super, is getting, wait, a two on top and a three on... Or vice versa. Vice versa, yeah. Like, but there are men for whom that is like their second language. So we need to hear from them. Let us know what we should tell listener Eric Schulte. Now, here's one we did feel qualified to answer. Dear Unorthodox, my husband and I usually travel to my parents for Passover, but this year we've decided to stay put. We both come from Jewish families, but my husband's is not observant. Passover seders, along with other observants, were not part of his upbringing in the Soviet Union. And the idea of inviting his relatives to a seder makes him uncomfortable. I understand where he's coming from, but the thought of not doing a seder makes me sad, as does the feeling that by not even raising this idea with his family, we're assuming it's something they wouldn't want to be part of. What's a girl to do? How can we breach the divide? Yours, a listener. Now, I, I found this in the inbox. I was so moved by this question that I, I took it on myself. And I now realize that the answer I gave her doesn't account for her very subtle and, and, and smart question that you're somehow disrespecting the relatives by not inviting them because they might actually appreciate an invitation. Right. Your in-laws might be moved by that invitation. So I'm going to bracket that for a second because I think that, you know, obviously that's in consultation with your husband. I think they he knows his family best, but I don't have a great answer to that one. But in terms of not doing a Seder at all, I think that's the wrong way to go. Um, look, a lot of us out there in the world, lots of Jews, most, in fact, all Jews, I would say, have some extended family who don't care and 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 don't want to come to a seder. And some Jews are very far from home in any family, and 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 so they don't. Family's not an option. So what should they do? And I think here's what you do: you say we're going to have a seder for for ten people, and you make five of them Gentiles who will be excited by Jewish ritual. They they are Jew friendly or Jew curious or they are religious and spiritual. Jew adjacent. Jew adjacent, and they will just like Gentiles love seders. So find five Gentiles in your orbit and say, would you like to come to this thing? It's called a Pesach. Seder, an order of meal for Passover. And they'll be so excited and they'll say, oh, can I bring a challah? And you'll say, no, wrong holiday. <laughs> but but you, will, you will have them and they will drink a lot and they will have so much fun and that'll be great. So five of your guests should be local Gentiles and five should be Jews with nowhere to go for Passover. And if you, you may know some, if not, uh, call a local rabbi and say, do you know anyone who needs an invitation? Or um, call a, a senior center and find out, is there anybody who would like to leave Hallelujah. for pa- Like really, like that, that will reserve you a place in whatever world there is to come and you will make new friends. So that's my advice. And we always try to have at least some non-Jews at our Seder table and also some Jews who otherwise might not have a place to go. And that is a very, very full Seder. So that was my advice. I sign, I sign on to that warmly. I think that's great advice. I also think the magic of Passover is that it's the holiday that doesn't, I know, I know it just requires so little of people, right? You just have to show up for a meal. Mm-hmm. And yes, there's a ton of Jewish content. There's a lot, you know, a lot of stuff that happens is like kind of messed up, you know, that you have to go through. And especially um, having people who are unfamiliar with it actually kind of highlights that, which mm-hmm. I think is great. But it's it's just a meal and it's food and it's, I mean, it's it's. It's at its root. Preceded by and followed by seven and a half hours of textual of text, analysis. Yes, right. yes, of Hebrew. Um, but there's a way in which it's so much more accessible than, say, like, come over for for Yom Kippur services or like come right. over for break. Like there's actually so it's such a, a low entry point, which is so great, which is why non-Jews can come and why lesser affiliated Jews and lesser experienced Jews can come. And then you actually have this really amazing, meaningful day. To- Stephanie, totally. And, and remember that. Some Jews are made uncomfortable by Passover. Gentiles are not. They can sit through four hours because every hour there's a glass of wine and there are songs. Like if all they remember from the evening is four glasses of what wine. What you're saying fits their tradition. That's, that's right. If all they remember is four glasses of wine and Dayenu, banging the table for Dayenu, like Dayenu. they will go home and say, the Jews have this amazing holiday. So I have some non-Jews, have some homeless Jews, some satyrless Jews, and, and you're good to go. And you'll be blessed. If you have questions for us about Passover or life, or anything, 
unorthodox at tabletmag.com. And if you feel that we just gave profound advice and you want to support more advice giving like that, just rate us on iTunes, share us with your friends, and rate us on iTunes. Keep us high up in the game. Mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov this week? I just want to throw a mazel tov to Noah Levinson, who put together a really incredible segment and totally blew my mind. And hopefully, uh, and I imagine um, a lot of the minds of a lot of listeners. A lot of minds blown wide open this week. Uh, I have two mazel tovs. One came in from some listeners. They wanted us to give a shout out to Eric and Alicia Schulte on both converting to Judaism this week. So wow. Welcome to the tribe. Um, Double we, welcome. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to all of the uh, the rights and responsibilities of being uh, the target of anti-Semites worldwide, but also the joy, the joy of traveling through eternity with us. Also, to my niece, Hannah Fremer, on her decision to go to LaGuardia High School. You might know it from the movie or television show Fame. She will be the one dancing on the cafeteria, squirting mustard out of the mustard squirter in well-choreographed time while high-kicking. And and looking at Professor Shirovsky. That's right. And another Mazel Tov that came in over the transom. Our listener, Laura Solomon, has a new job at the Center for Reproductive Rights. She is super mega devoted to Takun Olam, and she has been introducing her friends to Unorthodox for some years now. We got word of this from her friend, Yoram Ezra. Thank you for cluing us in, and Mazel Tov to Laura. Liel. Well, I think a final Mazel Tov is in order to to all the three point. Six, I believe, million Israelis who went to vote or could potentially go to vote this morning for surviving yet another election season. We'll do this again next year, guys. <laughs> till, till next year in the voting booth. Till next year. <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Liel's analysis of the new party vying for power in this week's election is on tabletmag.com. You can ask for our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Put newsletter in the subject line. Special thanks this week to Impact 89FM, WDBM, for helping us out with our Kirsten for Meglish taping. We often come to you live to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You need to wear and carry unorthodox too? Go to bit.ly slash unorthoshirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, onesies, pencils, Underwear, union suits, sleepers, um, Ebenezer Scrooge caps, you name it. No one should go without Unorthodox swag. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast, on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross, and our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Noah Levinson. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media intern is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Meira Ilinsky, whose artwork I have had the privilege of seeing lately. We come to you from Argo Studios, who will buy your chametz and promise to sell it back. Shalom. Friends. 